Together tonight, we acknowledge the traditional custodians on whose lands we meet and gather and yarn. The Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation, they are stewards and custodians on behalf of our almighty creator. For thousands of years, they have cared for these lands and waters on behalf of almighty creator. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. Uh, may this week, as we acknowledge their custodianship, their stewardship, and the almighty creator's presence in these lands and waters. Uh, may we remember to walk softly and gently on these lands, to learn more about the history of this place and its peoples, going back thousands of years since time immemorial. And may we all work towards building friendship with one another. Acknowledgement of country is about a genuine wanton act of building relationship with First Peoples. And even though I'm a Waka Waka woman, an Aboriginal Christian leader, I'm a visitor to these lands. And so um, it's just as important for an Aboriginal person from another country to acknowledge this country as it is for all visitors to these lands. And so may we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and future, by walking softly and gently on these lands. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brooke Prentice and I'm an Aboriginal Christian leader, a Waka Waka woman, not Wagga Wagga, um, but Waka Waka up in the lands now known as Queensland. Um, but I've grown up and lived on Gubby Gubby country until four weeks ago um, when I moved here to Gadigal uh, country of the Aura Nation and have taken on the role as Peace Talks Director um, for this year and so it's a privilege to be here and uh, a privilege to be here for the first Peace Talks of 2019. Uh, and thank you all for coming for the first Peace Talks for 2019. Um, hopefully you got the little flyers uh, as you walked in. Uh, so one of them, uh, this one, this long one, um, tells you about the next three Peace Talks and the dates for those. Uh, which is very exciting um, about who we've got coming up. So you can put those in your diaries. The Facebook events um, will go up from tomorrow. And then we've also given you uh, just a little card to fill in um, uh, so that we can keep in touch with you, not just on Facebook, if you want us to keep in touch with you. Uh, and also uh, down the bottom, if you've got any suggestions for speakers or topics that you'd like at Peace Talks, please fill that in as well. Uh, and so I'll remind you about those things at the end of tonight. Um, it's uh, very exciting to have Dave Taylor here as our first um, speaker in 2019. And it's special in a number of ways. For me as the new director of Peace Talks, and as Dave is the outgoing um, director and founder of Peace Talks, um, to be in this space together. And um, I'll introduce Dave in a minute, but just really wanted to take this opportunity uh, for me as a newcomer, but on behalf of the whole St George's um, Paddington Anglican team, Dave, just thank you for your contributions over so many years to Peace Talks. Uh, it's a privilege for me to stand here taking over from you in a way um, and to be here together tonight uh, for this, this time. 
Uh, for Aboriginal people, it's all about relationship. And the first time I was actually um, in this church was for a peace talks, and that was um, two years ago, I think. Uh, and Jeff Broughton and I, in preparation for our trip to South Africa, um, but that invitation from Dave uh, was, yeah, really um, exciting for me now to look down um, a few years later and be standing here uh, with another, a new connection to Peace Talks and acknowledging Dave's connection to Peace Talks um, and also acknowledge Sarah as well, um, Dave's wife who's here with us tonight and being a very important part of the team here at St George's um, for a number of years. So thank you for those contributions as a way to introduce you tonight. And so uh, how tonight's going to work is Dave's going to give a presentation that we'll have time for question and answer. Uh, and so really hoping that we can engage together. Um, something that I didn't quite realise, I thought the peace of Peace Talks was about peace and coming together and those sorts of things. But it's actually capital P, capital E, capital A, capital C, capital E, peace. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, that's quite cool to, to know that. So when you're talking to your friends about peace talks, which I hope you do, um, you can find out what those letters mean and uh, tell your friends about it too. But to introduce Dave for tonight, um, Dave Taylor completed his master's thesis in political theory in 2017, where he looked at the types of people and places that are included into nation states only by way of their abandonment. Dave is the founder of Peace Talks and is co-host of the upcoming podcast, thank you, Eucatastrophe, uh, Eucatastrophe. I practiced really hard too, Eucatastrophe, and I did just get off a plane this morning from the US, so I'll blame it on that, but Eucatastrophe, which seeks to bring the Christian theological imagination to bear on pop culture, politics, and social issues. Uh, Dave is currently working as part of the research team at the Centre for Disability Studies and is a parishioner along with his wife Sarah at St John's Anglican Church at Ashfield. And so Dave joins us tonight to speak on Making the World Strange, the church's intellectual vocation. So please welcome Dave Taylor. Um, thank you all for coming and thank you, Brooke, for that lovely um, introduction and it, it's a real privilege for me to be here and, and I'm very honoured to be handing over this work to such a wonderful uh, Christian and Aboriginal woman. Um, it's a, a, a massive privilege, so thank you so much for your, your very, very kind words. Um, yeah, I'm a bit moved actually. <laughs> um, and it's, um, yeah, I'm not sure what you had in mind when you came along here tonight. Um, this evening, I, I think I actually want to be doing something a bit different to what I, I pitched to Brooke um, when, I get, when, I when I told her what I was going to be speaking on it and kind of gave a blurb. That always happens with me. I always, I'm a couple of months out when I give my topic and then investigating that question leads to a bunch of other questions and I end up focusing on something completely different, which is what, exactly what happened tonight. I had intended, um, to save labour, to just parrot people like Charles Taylor and Alastair McIntyre and say that you've all absorbed the logic of capitalism and can never truly be Christian because of it. Um, but I've been saying that for five years now and there's still heaps of capitalism everywhere, um, so I thought I should probably talk about something different. Uh, 
so tonight I want to do two things instead, uh, and this is in light of the fact that it's the end of my work with Peace Talks and the beginning of Brick's, uh, Brooks' work with it. Firstly, I want to talk about um, the intellectual resources of the church or the Christian tradition and what they've actually meant for me personally as part of my personal narrative and why this led me to be involved and interested in creating things like Peace Talks. Uh, then given, so that's kind of my half of, it's actually going to be much more about me because, you know, I'm a white dude and that's what we do, <laughs> talk about ourselves a lot. Um, but then I also want to talk, um, given Brooke's interests, I want to give a few suggestions of the way in which, in my limited understanding, the church needs to turn to the intellectual resources of the first, our First Nations brothers and sisters to rediscover some of the truths that I fear that we as a tradition are in danger of losing. This second part I'm no expert on at all, and in fact I would not ordinarily be comfortable addressing issues related to Indigenous culture and cultural imagination, if, and I only do so now because I have someone here to correct me when I show my ignorance. Um, so please pardon me if I um, uh, stray into unfamiliar territory, but I, I, um, I threw myself on your grace. Uh, in doing this, I hope to argue, somewhat coherently at least, that resistance to the colonial state very much has an intellectual aspect to it. And through joining our Indigenous sisters and brothers in their struggle, we, I believe, can come and free our own minds from some unquestionable assumptions, whether we be from the progressive or conservative wings of the church, that I, I think have deeply problematised what it means to be a Christian for us. Um, so that's my humble goal for this evening, to decolonize our minds so that we can become more theologically orthodox. <laughs> so, good luck. Um, but let's begin with something much simpler, um, my own intellectual history. Uh, I gave a, a few snapshots of my upbringing when I gave my, one of my earlier peace talks uh, on depression and trauma in Christian theology. Um, I won't go much into much detail in, in this regard here, Suffice to say that by the time um, I was 12 years old, um, I was suffering from trauma and depression uh, due to experiencing abuse and neglect. Anyone who knows anything about these things, uh, trauma and depression, uh, will know uh, that children who have experienced trauma, uh, it, it's not just a matter of a child being sad or quiet or withdrawn, as they're often presented. Rather, the brains of children that have uh, experienced trauma don't function as normal, healthy brains are meant to. Uh, quite frequently, the brain operates like the Starship Enterprise when it's been torpedoed by a Klingon warship and is running in on emergency power reserves. It shuts down everything that it's not vital to survival. One of the other consequences is that you tend to withdraw into strange science fiction fantasy worlds to deal with painful realities. Um, it also becomes very adept at avoiding stimuli that were reminded of past traumas. So when it's triggered, it goes into fight or flight mode. Uh, so you either become very um, aggressive or very um, withdrawn and, and um, not wanting to socialize. Or as would uh, often happen with me, it would simply shut down. It becomes like um, a, a closed fist. Um, and that is the, a way of the brain protect, protecting itself from difficult uh, stimuli because for the brain that's been traumatized, the trauma um, isn't in the past, it's very much still present to the brain. So the brain closes down to protect itself. And so to this day, uh, if you're having a conversation with me, sometimes I stop speaking, I shut down a little bit, 
And that's usually because something has triggered a, a memory for me for, uh, of something painful. Well, what did this mean for my intellectual development? Well, it wasn't great. Uh, it meant that I had no ability to focus at school, and as often happens with uh, people who have experienced neglect, it also meant that I had very little capacity to link present action to future outcomes. So the idea of working uh, or studying so that you'll attain a, a certain mark in the future, or even the idea um, of basically turning up to school on time to avoid a detention, um, linking that present action with a future outcome was an, almost a neurological impossibility for me um, growing up as a child. Obviously, that the outcome of this was that I failed nearly everything um, from early primary school all the way through high school. I never passed a single thing, basically, um, which led to some very strong beliefs about myself, which is basically that I'm not a very intelligent person and not really worth anyone uh, listening to, <laughs> uh, kind of thing, which is strange given that I keep putting myself in positions where people have to listen to me. Uh, so that's very strange. But this deep, uh, this deep sense that I, uh, I'm not worthy and I'm not kind of... Um, uh, intellectually able it is a is a very difficult narrative to challenge, and this is where I think uh, for me uh, the intellectual resources of the church come in. When I was about 12 years old, or about 13 maybe, I started attending an evangelical youth group, um, and then started going to church through that. Uh, and during this period, I one way or another started identifying strongly as a Christian. I'd been christened as a in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but never entered the sacramental life of the church and never was initiated into any of the Catholic rites. Um, I identified myself as a Catholic because I was sent to Catholic scripture and my mum used to tell stories about beating up Protestants. <laughs> uh, so I knew that we were, we were of one <laughs> uh, particular uh, set of people, but I didn't really know what that meant and um, it, at least in my self-understanding as a 12-year-old was that I would con had converted to Christianity. I now kind of tend to think of my conversion as beginning at my christening, but that's a whole different story. Um, now, entering into an evangelical youth group and church setting, one of the things that I picked up very quickly uh, was the art of interpreting scripture. Uh, almost instantly, I became, became highly adept at understanding how the Bible hangs together as a coherent whole, how authors make allusions to earlier texts, I started to really understand things like uh, linguistic connections between things that are going on in scripture, started to understand a bit of the etymology from original languages, and I realized that I was very good at this, and I, I actually started receiving a lot of praise and affirmation for, uh, for this from youth group leaders and, and pastors and older Christians in my life. Uh, the church that I was attending at the time was highly reformed, um, and it was also Calvinist, and those who know these churches will understand that such churches hold an intricate web of doctrines that form a near-perfect system of thought. Uh, these things, too, I became highly adept at, and I knew the Calvinist line to take on all sorts of doctrinal questions, and I could offer Calvinist readings of texts quite effortlessly, though it must be said I never read Calvin, being from a neo-Calvinist church, and we don't read Calvin. Uh, I read, I'd read Calvinist, a lot of Calvinist texts, a lot of neo-Calvinist um, text. I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, but never read Calvin himself. Um, yet I was uh, in a Calvinist context. And so I became very good at that, that, that intricate web of Calvinist thought and doctrine. 
And again, this was something that I was praised for and encouraged to develop my talents in these areas by um, a, um, a lot of older men in my life. Um, now, it's difficult to describe what an effect that actually excelling at something had on someone from my background, actually excelling at an intellectual academic pursuit. And that's actually what, um, uh, say what you will about the nature of Calvinist or evangelical theology and hermeneutics, hermeneutics being our approach to text. Um, it is a deeply intellectual uh, pursuit. Uh, you might have objections to it, but that's precisely what it is. And I was good at it. And it developed in me a sense of self-respect, mastery, and, and most of all, a sense of dignity that I'd never really had before as a, as a young man in my teens. Now, many of you will have heard me say negative things about evangelicalism and Reformed theology if you've been to my talks before. It's a common foil for me. And, and I have to admit that I am still quite critical of these traditions for a number of reasons, even though I kind of, if I suspect if you if you um, scratch beneath the surface of my kind of Anglican posturings, you'll see a bit of Calvinism <laughs> pretty close to the surface. However, I, I'm also deeply indebted to this tradition. I'm in, indebted to it precisely because of this kind of intellectual dignity that it afforded me, um, and just sense of self-respect that I could get nowhere else. The emphasis on the in the Reformed Church on equipping each individual believer with the skills necessary to interpret Scripture, I believe is actually an incredibly emancipatory practice, and it w certainly was for me, and I think it was foundational for my intellectual journey. And so the tools that I picked up in hermeneutics, um, the, the art of interpreting texts, I then went on to apply in all sorts of different ways, from film studies um, to English literature and even to intellectual history. Um, so it was incredibly emancipatory, and I think that if you look at the history of when Calvinism um, and Reformed theology goes into places of social disadvantage, often it comes out with very powerful social goods because of this emphasis on the, um, the in, at least the insistence on the literacy of um, individuals and things like that. Now, you're going to hear me later on say a lot more negative things <laughs> about uh, some aspects of Calvinism, but this is a, a really important legacy of Reformed thought um, that I found incredibly powerful for myself. And yet, there is a type of Reformed theology um, and hermeneutic that seeks to be an almost perfect system of explanation through which all things can be explained, and this comes with its own sets of problems. Now, again, I would say that such systematic theologies were incredibly valuable in one way for me. They provided a schema through which a chaotic young mind like mine could interpret, interpret all of reality, and doing this, I was given a chance to exceed my, uh, exercise my intellectual muscles in a way that nothing in the secular world had allowed me to. Um, so it was incredibly important for me, but it, it's almost too good a system, which is, which is actually my, it ended up being my problem with it. And this, this aspiration to explain everything made the system incredibly rigid. Um, and when an unresolvable question emerged in one part of the system, the whole thing became vulnerable to collapse and questions certainly did come. Now, I want to pause here and offer a little bit of a reflection on the idea of fundamentalism, because in a way, part of the context that I went in veered into kind of a, a type of funda fundamentalism. Now, if you could imagine being in a situation that I've described, coming from a background um, that is incredibly problematic, where I've been given no opportunity to demonstrate any value 
uh, in myself at all. Um, and then I found my self-respect in an intellectual system and I'd invested my dignity in that system. What would it mean for you if you were in my position for that system to come under attack? It would be attack, an attack on your very soul, wouldn't it? Your very sense of self-worth. And this is my bit of moralism for tonight. I think this is why we actually need to approach people who are trapped in, or not trapped in, but are in fundamentalist traditions that we see as problematic and have very negative outworkings, perhaps, whether it's a type of Christian fundamentalism, uh, a type of Islamic fundamentalism, whatever. I think we need to approach people in this situation with a, with a deep uh, sympathy, especially if they come from a disenfranchised background or from a disenfranchised people or group. Uh, adherence to such a belief, I do not think, is necessarily just a sign of a lack of intellectual laziness or, or a lack of intellectual virtue in a given individual. I think it's also a sign that society has failed such people by failing to provide the dignity that they are relying on this system to, 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 to find in themselves. And this is something that their religious tradition and community is providing them in spades. And so the idea of just getting on social media and ridiculing people for being stupid fundamentalists is something I think we need to repent of. And this is something I need to repent of as well. Because these people, more often than not, are actually turning to these systems for dignity. Um, and I, my suggestion would be, if you want to challenge fundamentalism, that you actually have to challenge the friend-enemy distinction that fundamentalism usually depends on. It's usually very good at creating a big, bad other out there that are all horrible, mean people out to get you, and you're this chosen, sanctified few. And yet, the best way to challenge fundamentalism is, is to be kind, <laughs> to show that I'm not your enemy, even if you're going to make me one in your head. Anyway, that's my moralism for today. This is why I, I you know, yeah, I think I need to repent of dehumanizing people from incredibly problematic sets of beliefs. Um, and I, I would encourage, uh, in especially in age of social media, that we just think about who our utterances are serving. But as I said, uh, questions of this kind of mammoth intellectual system of Calvinism did come for me. Indeed, throughout much of my teens and 20s, a great portion of my mental energy went into wrestling with irresolvable questions and doubts concerning my Reformed theology. From what I understand, this is a pretty common experience for Reformed folk. It, maybe there's some people who... I'm not saying this is... There's plenty of intellectually credible, viable Calvinists and Reformed people here. Please don't hear me saying it's all bad. Um, but people of a certain uh, Reformed uh, background um, can find challenges to one part of the Calvinist system very, very challenging, hard to deal with, and quite irresolvable, and that was certainly the case for me. Indeed, many of the most outspoken atheists that I know um, are former Reformed evangelicals whose intellectual system came tumbling down under the weight of a single question. And this is the problem with rigid intellectual systems because they can't bear the weight of uh, a question arising in a single location. Because if that does, if one part of the system falls down, the whole thing collapses. And um, so some of the most virulent atheists that I know come, from, come out of this tradition um, uh, because they are so let down by the fact that they're the system didn't work the way it was meant to work. Now, my answer to this um, never-ending stream of questions that I was dealing was to become a voracious consumer of online talks 
um, and recordings of talks on theology and apologetics. One of the reasons for this was that I didn't finish, finish high school, and so I couldn't go to university and, and get a proper education. Um, and I also hadn't developed, because I just didn't go to school very much, I think I missed half, 50% of my classes um, by the end of my high school, uh, uh, I didn't develop the um, discipline needed to read for prolonged periods of time. This is something I had to work through in high school and as I got into university later on. Um, but w by becoming kind of just hunting down as many lectures and talks by, on Christian topics and philosophical topics and apologetic topics that I could find, it put me in contact uh, with forms of Christianity from outside of my own tradition, which made me realize that there were ways of being a serious Christian that didn't conform to my limited formulation of the faith. And this is the, one of the deep beliefs that I had growing, being converted into my context, was that you either kind of take the Bible seriously um, and are a proper Christian, uh, and everyone else is just kind of compromising to the culture or something like that. That's the kind of view. It might sound familiar to you if you come out of this thing. But I, I realized that there's actually people that are s deadly serious about being disciples of Christ, who actually had very different approaches um, very different presuppositions about the nature of scripture and all sorts of things. Um, uh, so this was incredibly uh, a very valuable time. Uh, and what it also meant that given how much kind of lectures that I was consuming, by the time I actually entered university in my mid-20s through a, doing a bridging course, I'd already consumed like, I would say at least a degree's worth of lectures. Um, in, in philosophy. Um, I actually, so I was fostered by a, a, um, uh, a Presbyterian minister. And this is why, um, you know, I never wanted to say my, con my, that background that I was converted into was purely negative at all. Some of the most, the best Christians that I've ever met come, are, are still part of this tradition. And I, I think there's so much valuable in it. Some of the best, most humane people I know are in these um, types of churches. So, and I was fostered by one of them, um, and his wife was a librarian at a Bible college, and I had chronic insomnia for the reasons that I used to talk about, and she would bring me home the recordings of the lectures, uh, and I listened to a whole theolo theology courses as a 15, 14, 15 year old. I would just, that's how I'd go to sleep, would be just listening to lectures on theology. Um, I was a weird kid. <laughs> uh, so what, what this meant was that by the time I entered into university, as an I entered as an intellectual outsider. Studying philosophy and art history, most of my teachers were either ambivalent to or belligerent towards religion. However, what I came to realise was that underneath this re rejection of religion tended to be an ignorance of basic theological claims. Um, this was certainly, definitely not always the case, but um, a lot, maybe perhaps most of the time was. I still remember... How much time do I have? Um, I still remember <laughs> being in a first year tutor, debating meta-ethics with my atheist tutor. Um, and I said, um, he you know, rejected divine command theory. The idea is that something is good because God says it's good, that's why it's good. Um, using a, an argument from Plato, from the Euthyphro dialogue, saying, you know, um, anyway, and I said to him, like, listen, um, maybe good is not uh, good because God says it is. Maybe everything that God says is an expression of his being, which is the good itself. 
And then my tutor literally said to me, oh, but that would be like him saying, I am what I am. <laughs> and if you're schooled in theology, that is a basic, that is, that is Abrahamic metaphysics. <laughs> and I thought, like, what, like, how do you produce a situation where someone can say that completely unironically and thinking, not realise they're making a... Uh, yeah, sorry. This is coming out like I'm an intellectual hero in this situation. I was a terrible student until I'd say six months ago after I finished my master's. Um, but uh, so uh, a lot of the time uh, it was based on like a, a lot of this, I think, rejection of Christianity, or rejection of religion or ambivalence towards religion uh, came out of an ignorance about the nature of religious belief as well as a set of metaphysical and moral assumptions that were taken for granted and not up for discussion. Uh, the experience, this experience was incredibly formulative to me, uh, for me because it made me see that the rise of, or at least this, and this is still a belief that I hold, that the rise of secularism was not the result of some argument religious people had lost along the way, but was actually due to a shutting down of lines of questioning that might lead to religious answers. I still believe that this is why we are not a religious cultures, but there's a lot of reasons for that shutting down of lines of communication, uh, lines of questioning, and they're, they're very complex, um, uh, but important to discuss nonetheless. Later on, I'd go and discover figures like Charles Taylor laid into my undergraduate studies and Alistair McIntyre, uh, and they would come to kind of confirm, confirm this story for me. And as, as I said, this is not to say I was some sort of intellectual hero at university. My university career took me from being a terrible student to being a resolutely okay one. Uh, I do, however, think that once I'd mastered kind of basic academic skills that I hadn't gotten in high school, I was in a position to say something interesting because I was coming um, from very much an outsider, both in terms of my age and my, my life experience. I was from a different kind of class than most of the people I went to university with um, and all sorts of things. Um, and I also went to university feeling like it was a massive privilege for me to be there. And this is actually... I think a big part of why I want to put on public lectures all the time is because I don't think people realise what a privilege a university is uh, and what a privilege an education is. Um, and I, I still feel like, feel like this. I think it's a, a wonderful medieval Christian institution. Um, early on at, uh, at uni uni university, I also came across the writings of another significant figure for me uh, in the person of Francis Schaeffer, who, for me, managed to provide a counter-narrative to the implied one offered by my teachers, the secularisation um, narrative. Schaefer painted a convincing picture of the intellectual trajectory of the Western tradition, uh, as problematic as that term is, don't worry about that though, and how it, rendered, uh, how it rendered the claims of Christianity unthinkable to our culture. Um, so the idea there being that Christian doctrines um, are meaningless utterances to our culture because of a set of uh, inherited ideas um, that have a genealogy to them. And actually going back and challenging the genealogy of ideas is the way to actually challenge the decline of religious belief in our society. Now, I suspect now if I were to go back and reread Schaefer's writings, I'd find his arguments quite unconvincing now. I, I haven't tried, uh, I, just, I just assume. But nevertheless, it was just the kind of thinking that would become the focus, uh, my focus to this day, telling an alternative story about the genealogy of our culture's ideas that would problematise secularism. Indeed, both of my uh, theses in my honours year and my masters um, were both doing this in a way, trying to 
undercut the modernist narrative. Um, uh, and with that, things like capitalism and liberal individualism and things like that. More on that later. But it was also through Schaefer that I encountered the work of Labrie. Uh, Labrie is an intentional community of intellectually inclined Christians who invite people to live with them for a time in order to explore where, uh, whatever questions they had in the context of a Christian community. In my mid-twenties, I stayed at a branch in the US and ended up moving into a branch here in Sydney with Sarah uh, for a number of years as I finished my undergraduate studies. Through this community, I made some significant friendships and through them started to delight in intellectual and cultural life, not as a means of resolving difficult questions, but as an, in, an end in itself. And as we moved away from Libri, we maintained these uh, uh, relationships and we began to host nights in each other's homes uh, where we would read poems to each other, essays, short stories, and things like that. And we ended up even starting to write talks to deliver to each other, just a group of innovative friends in, in living rooms. And this ended up evolving into here tonight, peace talks, um, uh, and became kind of institutionalized in that sense. Um, now, what does this, all this story and this stuff about intellectual communities and things like that, what does this have to do with the topic of tonight, the, church, the church's intellectual vocation? Um, as I said, I'd reaffirm, I, th I think um, inviting young people into the Christian thought world and giving them the ability to read scripture is incredibly an emancipatory thing. I think that's part of the church's vocation. Uh, I want to uh, emphasize that. But there are some other reflections uh, as well. I think peace talks reflects, uh, reflect something important about the intellectual life of the church in a few ways. Firstly, it comes out of a belief that if Christianity is true, it has to be true and be able to say something true about everything. That is, that there are no religious questions and secular questions. Rather, the church must have an, an interest in the pursuit of truth in all areas. This is why we would bother to hold lectures on things from influential Christian novelists to the presentation of women's bodies in early photography, to the history of the Bible in Australia, to public health discussions around obesity. The church does not just respond to questions either. Uh, I believe that the church's vocation is to be the host for the conversation, even perhaps especially difficult and uncomfortable conversations, wherever they might be. We're not just respondents to the culture, we're actually meant to be hospitable and um, intellectually hospitable as well as materially hospitable. Um, th uh, this brings me to my next point. The church can do this because of its confidence in her creeds. Uh, you can always tell that someone is harboring deep doubts about their belief system by how threatened they are by contradiction. God forbid that this is how the church should respond to criticism or questioning. This is not to say that the church should or can have an answer to every question that it's posed. Rather, it's our lack of defensive posture that I think should be the sign of our deep faith. So we'll be hospitable and we'll, we will take people's questions even if we are unable to answer them. Finally, truth is revealed in community. Truth is revealed in community, which is an emphasis that I wish that I'd, uh, something I'd wish I, in my time at Peace Talks, I'd put more emphasis on building a community of questioning and thinking. 
See, the remedy for my doubts as a young man and as a, a not-so-young man uh, was not some clever answer that I heard or read somewhere or came to myself. Rather, it was participating in a community of faith where ideas could be discussed openly in a community of trust. This allowed me to sit with my doubts and questions and not just simply seek to be all constantly resolving them. Indeed, I've come to believe that true Christian faith actually means performing and participating in the truth through the sacramental life of the church. Christian truth is not a mere abstract proposition that can either be assented to or not. Rather, it is a narrative that we participate in whenever we break Christ's body and await the resurrection of the dead. The answer to doubt, in my experience, is good theology embedded in the liturgical life of the church. That's my answer <laughs> to, to all my interaction. It, it basically means just go to church. <laughs> uh, and I know it sucks. <laughs> just, do, <laughs> just do it anyway. Um, this, is my, this is why people have been posting about the duns, people have, that have left the church because they're fed up. And people are all very sympathetic. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but I have to go to church. <laughs> like, you know, I know it sucks, but yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know, why do you get out of it? And I don't. Um, now, the, now this, this communal approach to truth, that, that, that truth is found by participating in community um, and actually participating in the truth through embodied actions and things like that. This, that might seem very esoteric, strange, and, and maybe foreign. And I think at this point, it goes against some very central, uh, it, it cuts across some very central cultural assumptions in contemporary, um, whatever you want to call our culture, late capitalist, um, whatever. Uh, this idea that truth is fundamentally something that we come to as a community, as a family of humanity, may in fact seem in ca very counterintuitive to you personally. I don't know. Um, and it's at precisely this point that I believe that we can turn to our indigenous neighbours to rediscover something of our own truth, our own approach to truth as Christians that I fear that we um, are in danger of losing. You see, uh, there have been many factors, both intellectual and material, that have led the Western mind to see, and again, a problematic word I know, a mind to see the truth as singularly an individualistic pursuit that you go away and you lock yourself in a room and you think real hard, you drink a bottle of wine and you read some books, and that's how you come to truth. That's right. <laughs> I think one has just revealed their hand. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, one could look at the Protestant Reformation, for example, um, as, as one of the um, points along the way to get us to this individualistic um, pursuit of truth. Uh, the, the Reformation, which insisted on the necessity of the individual's own personal relationship to the divine, um, and worse yet, one's personal relationship to a text. One could uh, also look at the Enlightenment project, um, beginning with Descartes, who sought to build up uh, a belief and certainty in the reality of the entire cosmos, beginning with a single thought inside his head. Since then, there's been a strong emphasis that own, true knowledge can only be found in those things that it's logically impossible to entertain the opposite of. 
And so the pursuit of truth becomes this armchair, sit down by yourself and work things out thought by thought until you've created a universe for yourself inside your head. Um, but there were also, I think, material, by material I mean economic or social causes for this shift in our thinking as well, or at least our approach to thinking. So, for example, the Industrial Revolution uprooted entire populations from their ancestral homelands in Europe um, and dumped them in alienated industrial urban environments. What does that do to your epistemology? It's not good. <laughs> the effect of this is that fundamental questions of identity, once aren't answered by an individual's placement in their historical homeland, was now up for grabs, and European populations were left with the fundamental question of who am I without the communal resources and historical place um, necessary to answer that question. And this was made worse by the, the historical decline, the, the decline of historical religious communities, which are themselves have been expropriated and uprooted. Um, and so our, our tie, our uh, the European mind's tie um, rootedness in soil in an actual physical location had been ruptured. And I think this led to, uh, this is not me thinking, this is Hannah Arendt, my intellectual hero, thinking this led to an alienation of the Western mind. Um, by the time uh, Christianity arrived in the land that we now call Australia, the nature of belief had shifted radically from the pre-modern world into all these ways, this pursuit of truth as this individualistic approach. Indeed, one of the ways in which the colonizers saw themselves as superior to other races was precisely through the priority of the individual over and against the communal. This, so the story goes, was the center of both, this individualistic term was the center of both European religion and capitalism and the productivity that went along with it. And this is how they dehumanized other people that weren't like this. The individual, according to this narrative, earned their ownership of the land through their individual cultivation of it, a cultivation that was enabled by capitalist individualism. Uh, and this is how the story goes. And this is the justification that was given for the displacement of our indigenous neighbors um, because they didn't um, interact with the land like capitalist individualists. They had no claim to it which, by the way, I was just recently reading, was exactly Caesar's argument for just justification for the invasion of the British Isles, <laughs> that, that, that the Britons didn't farm. And, and I've just been thinking about this because I've been looking at um, Dark Emu by... Um, this idea that this, this, the, the centrality of the farming narrative uh, to as an ju intellectual justification for the dehumanization of other people is fascinating. But it actually comes down to this dignity of the, this, this um, fetishization of the individual's productive power over against the, the communal. My argument is that the epistemology, that is the approach to knowing, of the indigenous peoples, peoples who the Europeans sought to save through their individualistic religion and capitalist productivity, were actually closer to Christian truth, uh, or at least a, Christi a Christian approach to knowledge than their supposedly Christian Europeans were because they had a communal understanding of the pursuit of logos, of the truth. From what I understand of indigenous culture, and this is where Brooke will have to correct me, um, the indigenous cultures of this land um, 
these cultures had and still have a fundamentally communal understanding of the world. Questions of identity, for example, are not solved through in an individual striving for their own personal truth or authenticity, but rather were answered through a network of familiar, familial relationships and kinships. I answer the question of who am I first and foremost through my kinships. Furthermore, on an even deeper level, I find my place in the, in the whole cosmos through the stories that are passed down to me and that I participate through in song and dance. These stories also fundamentally ground me in place. They are stories about my connection to uh, where my feet are, a concept that uprooted uh, European Christians found incredibly difficult to comprehend. And it's something that we still, as, a, 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 as the mainstream Australian culture, struggle with. How do we connect ourselves to our landscape? That is a, the question, the, uh, which leads to the most beautiful literature that we produce, but this is the open question for us. How on earth do we connect ourselves through this land? And I would suggest that it's actually the individualistic epistemological assumption that denies us the possibility of connecting to land. Um, we need a communal epistemology, a communal approach to knowing. Um, here I think indigenous culture, um, I believe in the indigenous culture, I believe the, that the church can see an image of a more Christian approach to truth seeking. How am I going for time? I um, okay. Uh, indeed, from what I understand, this a communal approach to truth extends to indigenous understanding of the world itself, to what we'd call ontology in philosophical circles, the nature of being itself. The world for the modern colonist was simply dead matter to be acted on and manipulated to suit our own ends. Now this is a character, obviously there's counterexamples to this, but I, I think it's a meaningful thing to say about our culture as a whole. This view has come to its full fruition today with our insatiable consumerism and its degradation of the world, uh, as well as things like biotechnologies that allow us to rewrite the very nature of embodied human existence. Some even talk of engineering the climate itself to suit our, pot, our patterns of consumption. Contrast with what I take to be the indigenous relationship to the world, a world that has its own projects and ends, ends that we need to submit to ourselves, a personal world that speaks back to us and makes demands of us uh, that we must submit to, uh, submit to ourselves. Um, this personalist understanding of nature, I believe to be much more in line with the Christian ontology that sees all reality grounded fundamentally in relationship, that is the self-giving love of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that belief in a triune creator allows you um, to treat the world as just dead matter to be manipulated for our own, uh, to suit our own desires. Resisting colonialism means resisting the intellectual forces, therefore, that tear human beings from their relatedness and isolate them, whether it's epistemologically, spiritually and metaphysically even. By, by metaphysically I mean this idea that w there is even such a thing as an individual self not in relation. True, true justice, I believe, for indigenous people cannot simply involve increased rights being handed down here and there, though that would be nice, I, I presume, 
but it has to begin, I think, with letting indi the indigenous understanding of the world shake up the assumptions that the colonial estate is actually based on. I believe that if the church were to join our indigenous sisters and brothers in this project, we ourselves would begin to think uh, more Christianly. And I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, I think we have time for questions. Uh, thank you, Dave. Um, you talk truth, hospitality and community, and so you're talking my language as an Aboriginal person, so thank you. Um, uh, thank you for what you presented. There's lots in there to process. Thank you for putting yourself into there from a personal reflection um, to then get to the resistance of the colonial state uh, I think for me, I take it one step further to overturn the colonial state. So resist and then turn it on its head and then maybe we will find freedom in all of our minds, which is how you started. So thank you for everything that you've shared. So this is um, now our opportunity for the last E in peace. So P-E-A-C-E, -E, which is the engagement uh, is that E. And so uh, we'd love some questions for Dave. And so we've got this mic that we'll rove around for questions. Hello, uh, my name's Steph. Hi. Thank you. Um, I find the idea of communal truth really difficult um, because it means that you all agree um, on something mm. when if we're thinking broadly with all different types of languages and cultures and ways of understanding, complexities of uh, experiences of life. Uh, how do we all come to one truth? Uh, it, like that's a concept that I find really difficult to get my head around um, and struggle with in this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, there was an extra point that I didn't include in my talk for a number of reasons about how I think... Um, yeah, I, I don't know how I sound when I'm talking about individualism and capitalism and, and things like that. Uh, I might sound quite radical, but there's some um, strange, quite conservative views in, in, in there as well. Um, I don't know, maybe conservative is the wrong word. But one of the points that I was going to make is I wanted to draw specifically on the Uluru Statement from the heart, and I think that that actually provides a way of understanding how to negotiate um, living in a modern democratic society very well. And I, th um, I think one of the, things, one of the idolatries it challenges um, for us is the, sta the modern nation states complete claim over all of life of its citizens and so the, the foundational story to that is the Leviathan in Hobbes that we have to we have to form this single unit um, to protect ourselves from not being city dwelling people <laughs> and having a nasty British and short life and um and actually one of the things that I want to do is actually disrupt the nation state while at the same time maintaining the integrity of multiple inter interlocking and overlapping sovereignties within itself. And this is why I think actually pursuing indigenous sovereignty is actually key to emancipating us as well, um, because it I'm getting, this is kind of approaching an answer to your question. 
is that I believe that, that a true and just um, society is actually made up of different different communities, all that have a respected um, epistemological status that are in conversation. So I don't I, I don't want to return to a um, hermeneutically so sealed society. I want a society that's made up of competing authorities within itself, and I very much want in Australia to one for one of those authorities to to be an indigenous, uh, recognised indigenous sovereign body within ourselves. And I think, I think that that picture of, of diffused, di like divided sovereignties within a single political body helps us to understand the possibilities for um, contesting ideas within communities while at the same time acknowledging the centrality of com community within itself. And so I, I, I want to see um, my vision for the nation state would be that it's cellular. It has lots of competing um, and recognised authorities within itself, from churches to um, unions to all sorts of movements and things like that. And I think part of the answer to your question is um, uh, our approach to even our difficulties with... So, like, I'm a, I'm a Sydney Anglican, for goodness sake. I've got a lot of contradictions within myself, within the tradition that I have to uh, inhabit. Um, but I'm also part of a number of different communities, all of which are in conflict and dialogue within, within me. And so I don't think the answer to... Um, I have different experiences to members of my community is to do away with the fact that even my questioning it can only make sense in the context of an interpretive community, as I would call it. Um, it's not to do away with the communal aspect of knowing, it's to actually see communities in, in dialogue and actually seeing myself as kind of traversing communities and different things like that. Now, that can go too far and can turn into almost a consumerism of ideas and, and turning, cult, uh, turning identification with group into a type of food court mentality. Um, but that's at least how I begin to answer, answer your question. But it's a really brilliant and important question that I think undercuts some of my pretensions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. So I think that the concept of truth in the way that we understand it actually yeah. plays into um, a scientific framework which is very Western. And so I think do we need to find a new word that's not truth, that is in... in instead like flourishing or like something that's not like more than truth if that makes sense like this is yeah sure more than truth i i i i guess you could try but i i just want to <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, that wasn't meant to be a joke i i um but i would say i a couple of things i'd say uh, very few scientists that i know are interested in truth as a as a term or even as a as an approach there's only um truth in the lowercase t, and it's truth about a particular um, thing. And there's very few people, apart from some um, people at a very high level of maybe um, a particular type of physics that might be aspiring to something that they would call truth. But I, I, I'm not sure. But, the, yeah, I'm not sure whether... There are all sorts of political reasons why I would want to hold on to the concept of truth. Because one of the, the very nature of totalitarianism is an assault on the concept of truth. And I think so many people have found resources for resistance in the idea that those in power can't gain a monopoly on, 
on truth. And so if we think of like the Velvet Revolution in Czech Republic, um, truth prevails for those who live in truth. Um, I, th I think we're sacrificing too much um, if by giving it away. Yes, Brooke. <laughs> May I add something? <laughs> um, so for me to answer your question or to add to, to bring it together is like you talking about the different sovereignties. Mm. We have an example of that and that's the Aboriginal map of Australia where you had 300 nations of people coexisting in peace and harmony with each other. So, um, uh, and I think part of the problem is the bound up of the Western mind in the concept of truth. And so for me, that's kind of where you were getting to in terms of looking at indigenous things. Um, yeah. It is wound up in that. And so, uh, maybe if everyone comes back on the 25th of May for Voice Treaty Truth, uh, which is the 2019 NAIDOC Week theme, we can think mm. more about truth as well. But yeah, um, And I suppose the, the other thing that I need to say um, is, as well is that, um, yeah, that if, if um, as someone who affirms the Christian creeds, that truth is fundamentally personal because I believe in, a, in someone that says that they're they are truth, um, and so truth is has has subjectivity tied into it uh, and bound into it because we we worship a personal truth. It's not a dead um, propositional truth in the way that maybe some people might ima imagine. Uh, Dave, can I go to the, the first part of your talk? And you talk about yes. the intellectual life of the church and. Sydney Anglicanism, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Um, it, I have for many years been a member of the Synod of the Diocese of Sydney. Yeah. And year after year after year, I have heard discussion concerning the nature of women and that specifically that women by their very nature are under the authority of men. Mm. And I've heard discussion of homosexual... Uh, same-gender same relationships, which if they purport to enter a commitment in any way comparable to marriage, must be inherently sinful. Hmm. And when these are discussed, they are not discussed by going to the relevant scripture and sorting out what the ver verses in context may have meant, either historically or now. That's not the issue. Yeah. The issue, as you, I'm sure you know, is the acceptance of the authority of scripture. And these minor considerations are subservient to the fundamental question that we in the Diocese of Sydney accept unreservedly the authority of scripture and people who are seeking to come up with other judgments on the matters that I've mentioned or others are those who are liberal, who compromise, yeah. who are not willing yeah. to accept the authority of scripture and it's simply uh, a debate on that level yeah. and not at the, what I would call the intellectual level. If you like. I was wondering, um, and I'm sure this must be known to you, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, in a sense I'm seeking self-help here. I have to sit through this stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, is there any way, I, any music I can play in my head that I can remember Dave said and make my life slightly more sane? 
Oh gosh. I feel like my, I hope my, my, my life is taken up by having to emotionally support men who go to Anglican Synod. Um, uh, yeah, like a couple of things. I'd say, first of all, I, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily anti-intellectualism that leads people to conservative views on these things. There is a, there is a internal coherence to the systems of thought um, that that go on, um, but yeah, I, listen, I, I don't I don't know what to say. I, um, you know, I know what it's like to to be a person who wants to hold on to a conservative reading of scripture, but has deep compassion and, and love for um, people that um, know that would they would see my views as hateful um, and. And so I, I don't think that there's just simply thoughtlessness going on there. I think there probably are people that are putting unseen um, kilowatts or whatever the higher amount of energy is of mental energy into trying to marry up contradictions in their own heads and compassion for people and things like that. So I don't think it's just intellect anti-intellectualism. Um, but at the same time, like a lot of things, um, the authority of scripture can just be a short circuit for thinking. Um, there's all sorts of things that can do that job. There's liberal and progressive versions of that. Um, some forms of identity politics, uh, which is a wonderful tool for making us question our normal uh, assumptions about individuals. But when it, when it comes in to just be a form of um, uh, short circuit to, to stop thinking about a particular thing, then it becomes problematic. And I think... Um, uh, biblical inerrancy authority of scripture can be that kind of short circuit. So I, I don't know how to help you with your existential angst there <laughs> um, about it. Um, su suffice to say, like, I don't know, um, I, I think there are all sorts of people struggling with deep questions uh, that we're probably unaware of and, um, uh, um, and Hopefully we can pray that the spirit of generosity moves um, to allow um, uncomfortable questions to be asked. Uh, that's as a quote to approximation of an answer that I can give. Um. Thanks, Dave. Hopefully uh, my question is either a free hit or I've completely misunderstood the sure. tonight's talk, so we'll see how we go. Um, why, in terms of like pursuing truth communally, I guess I want to know like why would it be seen as invalid or not as um, ideal to say sit in your room, listen to podcasts and read scripture or um, books that obviously have a tradition and have a community influencing it to that point opposed to with real people in front yeah. of you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Like, that's the, you're true to say that all thinking, I think, uh, um, is communal. Yeah. That, um, and this is, I'm very Arendtian in this sense, Hannah, being Hannah from Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt conceived of thought itself is you're bringing into your mind all the people you've ever talked to. And so it's actually all thinking is a conversation that you're having with other thinkers. Um, and this is why, actually, after I, whenever I, I've done, written two theses now, and it's actually finishing writing a thesis, well, it's a great time of celebration. Sometimes it's an incredibly lonely experience because you realise that you've formed a community with all these um, readers, uh, writers that you've read and thought about. So it's true. 
But that actually shows that the sitting in yourself by the, in the room is a simulacrum of community. If, communi if thought itself is communal, uh, communal activity, that means by denying the bodily presence um, of people um, uh, and, and actually having to look, and there's a deep ethical dimension to this as well, actually having to look someone in the eye is a very important epistemological moment. That's where you in encounter what you know, people like, forces like Levinas would say. You see yourself in the eyes of another and then you actually see the reality of, of yourself as a person. I, I think it's, Im I, I, I think, um, so for example, if, if I were, I, I would think it was very silly to have a ch uh, a, an advertisement for your Christian group on university campus that says, unlearn church, relearn Jesus. I can't, I, that's just, I'm pulling that out of my head, that's not a real thing. Uh, the idea that you can have a relationship unmediated, in, unmediated by community, I think is, um, nonsense, absolute nonsense, because um, being part of a, be, be actually having a relationship to, to Christ means having a bod an embodied presence um, with the, these people that are Christ's body on, on earth. Um, so that's just a, a rant about a sign I saw recently, <laughs> really, but, but I think you're right in your intuition that thought itself is a communal activity, um, but actually looking someone in the face um, is indispensable. Yeah, um, and bodily posture, like, um, sit, like, yeah. Anyway, like, I, I don't. This is not a, um, a hipsterish niche thing to say, but really, the moment that I don't experience doubt anymore is when I'm kneeling at the communion rail, and receiving the sacrament. That is the moment where I feel like, oh, I'm actually, there's something happening there, um, that that transcends the chaos of my my mind. I don't know why I threw that in, but there you go. <laughs> Just go to church. <laughs> that's, that's my mantra. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm, a, I'm from the country, mm -hmm. and I was just reflecting, this is an aside, uh, reflecting on my experience growing up. It was actually much more communal. Yeah. Um, and so... The reflection that I was having was cities are where universities are generally and people who write books live in mm. cities um, generally. Mm. Um, yeah, I just thought it was quite an interesting the centralisation of uh, culture kind of changes for a percentage but maybe not the whole as well. Um, yeah. And so I think where am I going with this? Um, in my experience, if it's too communal, it be, there's co more conflict sometimes, or if it's too embodied, yeah. there's internal conflict. Would you, like, is there some sort of balance that you need to have between the individual? Like, how do you see yeah. that balance and that yeah. tension? Because I think, um, and this, this was actually going to be a point in the the point that I, I took out uh, for time's sake. But, you know, there's a sense in which, um, you know, I badmouth things like liberal individualism, but liberal individualism has developed, um, uh, brought so much into the world as far as personal freedoms and capacities for hu human flourishing and things like that. It, it's a remarkable thing. But the cost that that came at, at was that these individual freedoms um, uh, were 
secured through creating a, a um, buffer between the individual and its community so that the rights, the, the demands of the communal could no longer interfere with the indiv individual. Um, and so uh, underneath even the individualism, there's this latent conflict narrative that goes on to say that we're, and this is where Hob Thomas Hobbes, the political theorist, who talked about life being nasty, brutish and short, and that we need to form a political single body to, and allow the king to be very, very violent, um, to, to stop us being violent to each other. That's a deeply kind of liberal impulse because, um, liberal being the individualist, because the, the liberal is concerned with preventing this underlying war that's apparently happening between every single individual. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's very problematic because it presumes that, the th that we are fundamentally in conflict as, <laughs> as human agents. Uh, and so I, I think um, you, you can't escape, and, and this comes out, this expresses itself in all sorts of strange ways um, through um, creating foreign others that we can bomb and things like that because they're not, they're not free enough yet and things like that. So, um, but th that's just to say that it's not that the communal is kind of uh, violent and or the communal is peaceful and the individual um, saved from the community is uh, in conflict or not. There's an, there's an underlying uh, conflict narrative going on in both places. So that's part of what I'd say. Um, uh, I don't know. You also just need to look at the violence of cities um, as alienated spaces. Uh, by alienated, I mean people are um, buffered from each other, but there's still the underlying violence to, to cities. Um, these kind of almost uh, monuments to individualism. Um, the, just by removing the communal aspect of identity, you don't save people from violence and conflict. You actually, in a way, you generate more because people don't know the face of the other <laughs> in the way that they do in community. Th those are some those are some thoughts on that. But I, I agree. Uh, you know, one of the, the interesting questions to ask is how much of our approach to truth or our approach to knowing as a culture comes from the fact that the people who write books live in, in cities. Um, and there is a particularly urban approach to truth that I think is quite um, tricky uh, and de depersonalised and dehumanising. Uh, I hope that made any sense. I'm getting very tired. I've been at work all day. Can we squeeze one more? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dave. That's great. Um, I don't know if I need the mic. Can everyone... Anyway. Oh, for the recording, sorry. Okay, so um, let's say we take all the theological assumptions um, as for granted and they're um, well and good, but a political theological approach. Um, I'm thinking going from my own, I'll take from your lead, going from a biographical, I'm at the mm. coalface of utilitarianism. I work in harm minimization up at yeah. um, KRC, which is a... Um, that's a moral uh, battlefront uh, historically um, in needle exchange program mm. and things like that. And I guess to kind of refine my question a little bit, um, if we all agree on the theology that you're saying, which is yeah. um, I do agree with, um, it's quite conflicting being in places like this because you have scientists who are very secular and very much wear atheism as a badge of honour, but it's irrefutable that they um, 
sociologically are reducing harm and the incidence of harm. But there is no yeah. commune in the sense of, um, you know, between religious communities and these uh, secular communities of atheists pretty much yeah. insofar as I guess the idea of it would be a political challenge almost in how to bring these people to church. Like you say, go just go to church as the yeah. And I'm not talking about the people who help, yeah. but the people in need who yeah. who their lives are very much measured biologically, whether they're sick or well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're addicted and yeah. their addiction having that like stem in needing to be led, but they're led by their physical urges. And there's just this huge gap between something that's a social good that I don't think any Christians would mm. um, argue against, well, well, the, which the, is like yeah. harm minimization, but how to go further in um, Our first injection is, room opened in a church. So. Yeah, but I find like, yeah, at the moment I'm looking at like things like their talk in, in England, they're looking at like ideas of drug testings and things in yeah. church where the church stays in truck with contemporary conversations that are going on so they the resources of the church like if we talk materially yeah. about the resources of the church yeah. like they're in England starting to use churches for drug testing and yeah. harm minimization and things like that yeah. and they're also resources that help the community and things like that and I wonder if you've thought of that dimension of the material resources of yeah. the church itself yeah. in a capitalist context like yeah. actually having material space and property and things yeah like that. i mean absolutely I, I i think about this a lot coming from my background uh, was in youth work and i work with um at-risk youth and i now work in disability and one of the problems with both of those situations is that the the, the underlying assumption is um the end point for these people is always to produce an isolated individual. <laughs> like that's how that's how you, yeah, and that's how you measure the success of your programs is whether you've. Um, so the NDIS is very clever with this, um, where it says that it's it's fostering, you know, um, self determination. What they mean is get them a job so we don't have to pay for them anymore. Uh, and so this uh, this. Uh, Self-determination, uh, self-determination being a very good good to be pursued, um, but it actually ends up being uh, masking the desire to actually produce an unhealthy socialization anyway, which is an assumption that we are atomized individuals. And we, you know, I, I've, I've seen terrible things that I can't go into too much detail because it relates to my work uh, in, in related to people with profound intellectual disabilities. Um, and the paradigm to, to know whether or not these people's rights are being respected is based on the assumption of the individual. Um, but these people can ha have, and this is a risky thing to say, but the, at, the, at the most extreme end, can only have a self mediated through another person, can only be related to as an I through the context of a relationship. So how, how do you actually service someone with that cognitive capacity with the assumption that we're trying to produce atomized in individual. It's an absurdity. But I found, found this in youth work with things like foster care placement and things like that. The idea that you just need to provide services enough to ship them through until they're 18 years old, and then they can become a 
productive member of society through getting a job and paying some taxes and things like that. So um, all the utilitarian kind of, I suppose it would be a matter of redefining utility, but that in the crudest sense of utilitarianism, the utilitarian approach is to minimising um, painful subjective experiences in the present without an aim at actually thinking of what does a, a healthy relationship to a society actually look like uh, is an absurd and incredibly unjust and doesn't serve anyone's actual human needs, I think. And this is something I've, in all the areas of social welfare that I've been involved in, um, it's an ongoing trouble. And this is why, yeah, I think um, finding communities comparable to the church where just by virtue of them turning up, you're invested in their well-being, um, there needs to be some alternative, at, or they, at least the, either the church needs to do that or be given the opportunity to do that, or there needs to be some alternative generated to people actually having communities where they can go, where people will be invested in them just by being a bodily, in virtue of being a bodily presence there. <laughs> um, that's my rambling response. So very good points. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I had an incredibly powerful experience recently. I, I've, I've. This is why I'm a bit vulnerable at the moment. I've been um, doing site reviews, site visitations for people with extreme intellectual disabilities in residential facilities, and have seen some things <laughs> recently. Um, uh, watch this space for a royal commission. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, um, where was I going with this? I've seen some things. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so going into these, uh, these residential facilities, um, the assumption is that if you just resource people with enough service providers in their life, all the problems will will go away. Um, and so everything can be solved through this um, transactional relationship that forms. Um, and this happens in even like, so in Germany, for example, there, and it, it seems like it has really good outcomes as well, but there's this idea of paying people to be foster parents, so you professionalise foster parenting. And, you know, I talk to my more utilitarian friends and they, they can't see why I would see it as a problem to transactionalise the most intimate family relationship, especially myself having been fostered myself. The idea that someone, this person's a service provider for me. Um, but then I, had, I went from these things, thinking about these horrible things, and then I recently went to Lash, uh, which is an amazing community um, of people living in Christian communities who have intellectual disabilities and who don't, who manage to form relationships that transcend the service provider, um, consumer, which is a horrible word that we use in our field service provider consumer model is somehow rapturing that thing, I think. This is turning into a very different lecture, sorry. Uh, uh, is, is the most revolutionary thing that I think we can do to actually form social bonds is incredibly relation, uh, revolutionary these days um, that are not transactional or contractual, um, that are intimate and familial. And again, turning to our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, can I stop talking now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, Dave, stay here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight. Thank here you. is a oh, gift, lovely. our Five Ways Honey from Yay. our um, beehives uh, and a card for you as well. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, may we all remember to just go to church. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have to. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but may we hold on to the truth. Um, that we know that all things are interconnectedness, interconnected, um, and that Creator, uh, Spirit, and Jesus have been here since time immemorial. And I think they're some of the gifts as Aboriginal Christians that we can give to the church. Um, and may the Holy Three uh, help us to go to church, um, but also to create community within our churches and that through that community uh, we find human dignity in all peoples and in all community and understand that interconnectedness of all creation. So thank you so much. Um, can we give Dave another <laughs> hand? Uh, everyone's welcome to join us uh, outside for a cup of tea and um, some supper uh, and coffee. Um, I think we'll be there as well. Um, I just remind you, your little flyer. So our next Peace Talks is on Thursday the 28th of March uh, where Dr Byron Smith will be talking to us about Heads in the Sand and Australian Climate Politics and the Church. Um, and Peace Talks this year will alternate between Thursdays and Saturdays just depending on the availability of the speaker that we have in. So it's not going to be this every Thursday or this every Saturday, um, but we'll always be advertising three months in advance um, so that you've got plenty of notice. Uh, then following that one is we've got Thursday the 11th of April where we're having a live recording of the With All Due Respect podcast. Um, and then I already gave the, the plug for the 25th of May. Um, but please follow us on Facebook. Invite your friends to follow Peace Talks on Facebook. Uh, we create a different community here uh, and another way to engage in community um, and uh, hopefully um, we'll see you again throughout the year uh, and thanks again to Dave uh, and to Sarah as well and please come and join us um, for some light supper and thank you all for coming. <laughs>